chapter nine part two of the ordeal of mark twain this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. the ordeal of mark twain by van wick brooks chapter nine mark twain's humor part two mark twain once committed to the pursuit of success was obliged as i say to remain a humorist whether he would or no when he went east to carry on his journalistic career the publishers of the galaxy to which he became a regular contributor specifically asked him to conduct a humorous department and after the success of the innocents abroad his publisher bliss we find especially suggested and emphasized a humorous work that is to say a work humorously inclined we have already seen in a previous chapter that whatever was true of the pioneer society on the pacific slope was essentially true also of the rest of the american population during the gilded age that the business men of the east were in much the same case as the pioneers of the west the whole country as we know was as thirsty for humor as it was for ice water mark twain's humor fulfilled during its generation a national demand as universal in america as the demand fulfilled in russia by dostoevsky in france by victor hugo in england by dickens we have at last begun to approach the secret of this interesting fact i have spoken of the homogeneity of the american people during the gilded age mr howells has already related this to the phenomenon of mark twain's humor we are doubtless he says the most thoroughly homogeneous folk that ever existed as a great nation in our phrase we have somehow all been there when our humor mentions hash we smile because we have each somehow known the cheap boarding-house or restaurant when it alludes to putting up stoves in the fall each of us feels the grime and rust of the pipes on his hands we smile because in that because we have the whole story of mark twain's success the cheap boarding-house where everyone has to pretend that he loves all his neighbors is the scene of many restraints and many irritations and as for the grime and rust of stovepipes that is a sensation very far from pleasant sensitive men constrained by love and duty to indulge in these things have been known more than once to complain about them and even if the truth were known to cry bloody murder that was mark twain's habitual reaction as we can see from the innumerable sketches in which he wades knee-deep in the blood of chambermaids barbers lightning-rod men watchmakers and other perpetrators of the small harassments of life 
mark twain was more exasperated by these annoyances of everyday life than most people are because he was more sensitive but most people are exasperated by them also and as mr howells says all the american people of mark twain's time were exasperated by the same annoyances they were more civilized individually in short than the primitive environment to which they had to submit and mark twain's humor gave them face to face as they were with these annoyances the same relief it had given the miners in the west afforded them that is to say the same economy of expenditure in feeling we smile because that humor shows us that we are all in the same boat it relieves us from the strain of being unique and solitary sufferers and enables us to murder our tormentors in our imaginations alone thus absolving us from the odious necessity of shedding the blood our first impulse prompts us to shed mr howells says that we have somehow all been there a phrase which he qualifies by adding that the typical american of the last generation was the man who has risen the man who has risen is the man who has become progressively aware of civilization and the demands of the typical american of mark twain's time the demands he made upon his environment had become pari passu progressively more stringent while the environment itself remained perforce just as barbarous and corrupt and unregenerate and annoying as ever but why perforce because it was good for business it was the environment favorable for a regime of commercial exploitation wasn't the man who has risen the typical american himself a businessman now we have already seen that this process of rising in the world of succeeding in business is attained only at the cost of an all but complete suppression of individuality the social effect of the stimulation of the acquisitive instinct in the individual is a general leveling down and this is universally conceded to have been characteristic of the epoch of industrial pioneering the whole nation was practically organized by a sort of common consent on the plan of a vast business establishment under a majority rule inalterably opposed to all the inequalities of differentiation and to a moral and aesthetic development in the individual that would have retarded or compromised the success of the business regime we can see therefore that if mark twain's humor was universally popular it was because it contributed to the efficiency of this business regime because it helped to maintain the psychic equilibrium of the businessman the country over precisely as it had at first helped to maintain the psychic equilibrium of the western pioneer as a matter of fact 
mark twain has often been called the businessman's writer in that humor of his as in no other literature the strong silent man who is the archetype of the business world sees an aid rather than a menace to his practical efficiency but why does he find it an aid and not a menace let us put the question the other way and ask why in other forms of literature he finds a menace and not an aid the acquisitive and the creative instincts are as we know diametrically opposed and as we also know all manifestations of the creative spirit demand require an emotional effort a psychic cooperation on the part of the reader or the spectator this accounts for the businessman's proverbial hatred of the artist a hatred that expresses itself in a contemptuous desire to shove him off the map every sort of spiritual expansion intellectual interest emotional freedom implies a retardation of the businessman's mental machinery a retardation of the strenuous life the life of pure action consequently the businessman shuns everything that distracts him confuses him stimulates him to think or to feel bad for business on the other hand he welcomes everything that simplifies his course everything that helps him to cut short his impulses of admiration reverence sympathy everything that prevents his mind from opening and responding to the complications and the implications of the spiritual and intellectual life and this is precisely what mark twain's humor does it is just as irreverent as the boston brahmins thought and especially irreverent toward them when they gave him a seat below the salt it degrades takes down punctures ridicules as pretentious and absurd everything of a spiritual aesthetic and intellectual nature the recognition of which the participation in which would retard the smooth and simple operation of the businessman's mind mark twain as we shall presently see enables the businessman to laugh at art at antiquity at chivalry at beauty and return to his desk with an infinitely intensified conceit in his own worthiness and well-being that is one aspect of his humor in another aspect he releases in a hundred murderous fantasies of which i have mentioned several all the spleen which the business life with its repression of individuality involves finally in his books about childhood he enables the reader to become a boy again just for a day to escape from the emotional stress of maturity to a simpler and more primitive moral plane in all these respects mark twain's humor affords that economy of expenditure in feeling which 
as we now perceive the business man requires as much as the pioneer glance now at a few examples of mark twain's humor let us see whether they corroborate this argument in a tramp abroad mark twain at the opera in mannheim finds himself seated directly behind a young girl how pretty she was and how sweet she was i wished she would speak but evidently she was absorbed in her own thoughts her own young girl dreams and found a dearer pleasure in silence but she was not dreaming sleepy dreams no she was awake alive alert she could not sit still a moment she was an enchanting study her gown was of a soft white silky stuff that clung to her round young figure like a fish's skin and it was rippled over with the gracefulest little fringy films of lace she had deep tender eyes with long curved lashes and she had peachy cheeks and a dimpled chin and such a dear little dewy rosebud of a mouth and she was so dove-like so pure and so gracious so sweet and bewitching for long hours i did mightily wish she would speak and at last she did the red lips parted and out leaped her thought and with such a guileless and pretty enthusiasm too auntie i just know i've got five hundred fleas on me this bit of humor is certainly characteristic of its author what is its tendency as the psychologists say mark twain has one observes all the normal emotions of a man confronted with a pretty girl he has them so strongly indeed that he cannot keep his mind on the business in hand which happens to be the opera he finds himself actually prevented as he is from expressing himself in any direct way drifting into a rhapsody about her what does he do then he suddenly dashes a pailful of ice-water over this beautiful vision of his cuts it short by a turn of the mind so sharp so vulgar indeed that the vision itself evaporates in a sudden jet of acrid steam that young girl will no longer disturb the reader's thoughts she has vanished as utterly as a butterfly under a barrel of quicklime beauty is undone and trampled in the dust but the strong silent business man is enabled to return to his labors with a soul purified of all troubling emotions another example the famous esophagus hoax in the opening paragraph of a double-barreled detective story it was a crisp and spicy morning in early october the lilacs and laburnums lit with the glory fires of autumn hung burning and flashing in the upper air a ferry bridge provided by kind nature for the wingless wild things 
that have their home in the treetops and would visit together the larch and the pomegranate flung their purple and yellow flames in brilliant broad splashes along the slanting sweep of woodland the sensuous fragrance of innumerable deciduous flowers rose upon the swooning atmosphere far in the empty sky a solitary esophagus slept upon motionless wing everywhere brooded stillness serenity and the peace of god we scarcely need mr paine's assurance that the warm light and luxury of this paragraph are facetious the careful reader will note that its various accessories are ridiculously associated and only the most careless reader will accept the esophagus as a bird mark twain's sole and wilful purpose one observes is to disturb the contemplation of beauty which requires an emotional effort to degrade beauty and thus divert the reader's feeling for it to degrade beauty to debase distinction and thus to simplify the life of the man with an eye single to the main chance that one would almost say is the general tendency of mark twain's humor in almost every one of his sallies as any one can see who examines them he burns the house down in order to roast his pig he destroys that is to say an entire complex of legitimate pretensions for the sake of puncturing a single sham and as a rule even the shams are not shams at all they are manifestations of just that personal aesthetic or moral distinction which any but a bourgeois democracy would seek in every way to cherish consider for example the value assailed in his famous speech on general grant and his big toe the effect of mark twain's humorous assault on the dignity of general grant was to reduce him not to the human but to the common level to puncture the reluctant reverence of the groundlings for the fact of moral elevation itself and the success of that audacious venture its success even with general grant was the final proof of the universal acquiescence of a race of pioneers in a democratic regime opposed in the name of business to the recognition of any superior value in the individual what made it possible was the fact that grant himself had gone the way of all flesh and become a business man the supreme example of mark twain's humor in this kind is however the connecticut yankee it was another of my surreptitious schemes for extinguishing knighthood by making it grotesque and absurd says the yankee sir ozana's saddle was hung about with leather hat boxes and every time he overcame a wandering knight he swore him into my service and fitted him with a plug and made him wear it mark twain's contemporaries 
mr howells among them liked to imagine that in this fashion he was exposing shams and pretensions but unhappily for this argument knighthood had been long extinct when mark twain undertook his doughty attack upon it and it had no unworthy modern equivalent to exalt the plug above the plume was a very easy conquest for our humorist it was for this reason and not as mark twain imagined from any snobbish self-sufficiency that the english public failed to be abashed by the book in this respect at least the connecticut yankee was an assault not upon a social institution but upon the principle of beauty itself an assault moreover in the very name of the shrewd pioneer business man how easy it is now to understand the prodigious success of the innocents abroad appearing as it did precisely at the psychological moment at the close of the civil war at the opening of the epoch of industrial pioneering in the hour when the life of business had become obligatory upon every american man how easy it is to understand why it was so generally used as a guidebook by americans traveling in europe setting out only to ridicule the sentimental pretensions of the author's own pseudo-cultivated fellow-countrymen it ridiculed in fact everything of which the author's totally uncultivated fellow-countrymen were ignorant everything for which they wished just such an excuse to be ignorant where knowledge would have contributed to an individual development incompatible with success in business a knowledge that would have involved an expenditure in thought and feeling altogether too costly for the mind that was fixed upon the main chance it attacked not only the illegitimate pretensions of the human spirit but the legitimate pretensions also it expressly made the american business man as good as titian and a little better it made him feel that art and history and all the great elevated admirable painful discoveries of humankind were things not worth wasting one's emotions over oh the holy land yes but the popular biblical culture of the nineteenth century was notoriously as matthew arnold pointed out the handmaid of commercial philistinism and besides ancient palestine was hardly a rival in civilization of modern america i find your people your best people i suppose they are very nice very intelligent very pleasant only talk about europe says a traveling englishman in one of howells's novels they talk about london and about paris and about rome there seems to be quite a passion for italy 
but they don't seem interested in their own country i can't make it out it was true true at least of the colonial society of new england and no doubt mark twain's dash of cold water had its salutary effect the defiant americanism of the innocents abroad marked almost as definitely as whitman's leaves of grass the opening of the national consciousness of which everyone hopes such great things in the future but unlike leaves of grass having served to open it it served also to postpone its fruition its whole tendency ran precisely counter to whitman's in sterilizing that is to say instead of promoting the creative impulses in the individual it buttressed the feeble confidence of our busy race in a commercial civilization so little capable of commanding the true spiritual allegiance of man that they could not help anxiously inquiring every traveling foreigner's opinion of it here we have the measure of its influence both for good and for evil that influence was good in so far as it helped to concentrate the american mind upon the problems and the destinies of america it was evil and it was mainly evil in so far as it contributed to a national self-complacency to the prevailing satisfaction of americans with a banker's paradise in which as long as it lasts the true destinies of america will remain unfulfilled so much for the nature and the significance of mark twain's humor i think we can understand now the prodigious practical success it brought him and are we not already in a position to see why the role of humorist was foreign to his nature why he was reluctant to adopt it why he always rebelled against it and why it arrested his own development obviously in mark twain the making of the humorist was the undoing of the artist it meant the suppression of his aesthetic desires the degradation of everything upon which the creative instinct feeds how can a man everlastingly check his natural impulses without in the end becoming the victim of his own habit i have spoken of the connecticut yankee we know how mark twain loved the tales of sir thomas mallory they were to him a lifelong passion and delight as for knightly trappings he adored them think of his love for gorgeous costumes of the pleasure he found in dressing up for charades of the affection with which he wrote the prince and the pauper when therefore in his valiant endeavor to extinguish knighthood he sends sir ozana about the country laying violent hands on wandering knights and clapping plug hats on their heads he is doing something very agreeable indeed to the complacent american business man 
agreeable to the business man in himself but in absolute violation of his own spirit that is why his taste remained infantile why he continued to adore nightly trappings instead of developing to a more advanced aesthetic stage his feelings for mallory we are told was one of reverence the reverence which he felt was the complement of the irreverence with which he acted one cannot degrade the undegradable one can actually degrade only oneself and the result of perpetually taking things down is that one remains down oneself and beauty becomes more and more inaccessibly up that is why in the presence of art mark twain always felt as he said like a barkeeper in heaven in destroying what he was constrained to consider the false pretensions of others he destroyed also the legitimate pretensions of his own soul thus his humor which had originally served him as a protective coloration against the consequences of the creative life ended by stunting and thwarting that creative life and leaving mark twain himself a scarred child he had to the end the intuition of another sort of humor will a day come asked satan in the mysterious stranger when the race will detect the funniness of these juvenilities and laugh at them and by laughing at them destroy them for your race in its poverty has unquestionably one really effective weapon laughter power money persuasion supplication persecution these can lift at a colossal humbug push it a little weaken it a little century by century but only laughter can blow it to rags and atoms at a blast as a race do you ever use it at all no you lack sense and the courage it was satire that he had in mind when he wrote these lines the great purifying force with which nature had endowed him but of the use of which his life had deprived him how many times he confessed that it was he who lacked the courage how many times we have seen that if he lacked the courage it was because quite literally he lacked the sense the consciousness that is to say of his own powers of his proper function satire necessitates above all a supreme degree of moral maturity a supreme sense of proportion a free individual position as for mark twain by reacting immediately to every irritating stimulus he had literally sworn and joked away the energy the indignation that a free life would have enabled him to store up the energy that would have made him not the public ventilator that he became but the regenerator 
he was meant to be mr paine speaks of his high pressure intellectual engine let us follow the metaphor by saying that mark twain permitted the steam in his system to escape as fast as it was generated he permitted it to escape instead of harnessing it till the time was ripe to blow to rags and atoms that world of humbug against which he chafed all his life but he staked everything upon the dream of happiness and humor by affording him an endless series of small assuagements enabled him to maintain that equilibrium i am tired to death all the time he wrote in eighteen ninety five out of the stress of his financial anxieties with that in mind we can appreciate the unconscious irony in mr paine's comment perhaps after all it was his comic outlook on things in general that was his chief lifesaver end of chapter nine part two recording by lucretia b